Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I'm your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark, and I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I am well. I am so happy to be talking about movies with friends. First up in controversies and controversies, uh, let's take a look at the state of the writer's strike. Uh, for a hot minute, it looked kind of sort of like the WGA and the AMPTP were nearing a deal. Cautious optimism washed over writer film Twitter, screenwriter Twitter, as writers heard whispers that the AMPTP counterproposal was, you know, acceptable at least. Yeah, maybe not the but we stuff to work with and WGA, maybe gonna, you know, get a few more concessions, but we'll get back to work here soon. It's everything's looking good and then nothing. Nothing, and then worse than nothing, the AMPTP released details of their plan, possibly in an effort to peel off support from the rank-and-file writers. Uh, the WGA angrily responded, and now, well, a whole lot of nothing. Uh, look, here's the thing. Uh, let me explain this to both the writers and the, the studios. Uh, the two sides do seem much closer than they were uh, before on the sort of stuff you usually negotiate in a strike of this sort, right? AMPTP uh, proposed raise of 5% rather than the WGA6. Uh, streaming residuals offered by AMPTP were in line with the DGA deal. Writers of original screenplays would be guaranteed the right to do and be paid for a first rewrite, et cetera, et cetera. That's not nothing. That's, you know, some movement. But the biggest issues are still on the table and still kind of intractable. The studio Studios budged a little on minimum writer's room sizes, uh, but the WGA says there's enough wiggle room that newer showrunners could be browbeaten into maintaining the so-called mini-rooms um, that are so loathed by the writers. Uh, they they don't, they want to get rid of all this uh, talk of, you know, let the showrunners decide if they want a room. That's that's not how this works. Uh, on AI, uh, the studios refuse to agree not to train AI programs based on scripts already owned by the studio. And the WGA remains concerned that the studios are basically going to use generative AI to functionally turn writers into rewrite artists of computer-created material. The biggest issue continues to be success-based residuals. The streamers say more or less, look, we're paying more up front. But fine, we'll let six people from the WGA look at data so they can figure out what a residuals payout might look out at the next negotiation, you know, three years from now. But you, you can't actually get any residuals yet. And also, you can't tell anyone how their shows are doing. Very important. We maintain strict secrecy. Uh, WGA kind of understandably said, screw off. That's ridiculous. We're not doing that. Look, you know, if I'm sketching out a settlement on the back of a napkin here, I think the studios are going to have to bite the bullet on AI and accept no use of such programs, even if weird little indies are, you know, creating AI crap scripts all the time. Um, I think the writers are going to have to compromise on writer's room sizes and basically allow opt-outs for showrunners who don't want the minimum writer rooms. I realize that leads to lots of pressures, but, but like, if, if a guy like Taylor Sheridan doesn't want six writers, you know, sitting around doing nothing like it's a Sopranos make work job. Fine. Who cares? The success based residuals are going to be tougher to work out as they are going to require some sort of data transparency. The studios have absolutely no interest in giving up data transparency. And allow me to suggest that at least a part of the reason for this is because an incredibly tiny number of people are watching a shockingly high number of production. Uh, just, I want to go back to a, an interview I did with uh, the entertainment strategy guy on another podcast, Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. He rattled off dozens of shows I'd literally never even heard of. And I'm literally paid to hear about this stuff. Uh, shows like Rain Wilson and the Geography of Bliss, Swiping America, The Crossover, Queen of the Universe, Free Ridge, The Rig, Koala Man, 
Koala Wait, Man. You haven't heard of Koala Man? Koala Man. Huge you're just, hit ma- you're just making in this the up. Koala community. And you're on making Koala up, you're Twitter. Making I'm not making up names. If I was making up names, I wouldn't come up with something as ridiculous as Koala Man. Uh, Dear that, Edward. That show, is a, a, that show is making bank on Koala Talk. Koala, koala TikTok. Uh, I, I subscribe to all of the services that all of these shows played on, and I've seen zero minutes of any of them, and frankly, have heard of none of them. I just, I'm unaware of their existence, and I think a lot of people are in my boat. Look, here's the thing. I understand why streamers are a bit hesitant to share their actual data. Data is power. Everybody wants to know what works, and nobody wants to give up that information and risk the other people figuring out what's secretly about. Whatever. Fine. But if the actors and writers uh, aren't going to back off a success-based residual, and I don't think they are, and frankly, I don't think they should, then why not just outsource the process to a company like Parrot Analytics, right, which measures relative popularity? That's what the actors suggested in their proposal. And the AMPTP said it was a terrible idea. Parrot has no idea what's actually popular. They don't know why we, how we renew things, blah, blah, blah. Like, fine, but at least it's, it's a, you know, a neutral third party doing a neutral third party thing and lets everybody save some face here. Seemed like a pretty good compromise idea to me. Alyssa, if you had to sit down these two sides and hammer out a compromise, how would you go about doing it? I, I've been tasked, I am President Biden, I've tasked Alyssa Rosenberg with hammering this out as a as a negotiator, what would you what would you do? I would start by defining showrunner because I think this has been an underlying sticking point in the negotiation over mandatory writers rooms is who gets to count as a showrunner. There's some concern that you know networks and studios will kind of blur that title and um, take away the power of showrunners who actually do want writers' rooms to make that decision. And so I think if you had a strong definition of showrunner, uh, you would be able to accommodate both the Tyler Sheridans of the world, but also the people who want writers' rooms because they think they work well, because they think it's a contribution they can make to other people, you know, being able to sort of come up and learn the craft because, you know, it's hard to write X number of episodes of television a year unless you're sort of supremely confident slash want to milk Paramount for money so you can run your enormous ranch empire. And so that might be a situation where if you had a strong definition of showrunners, showrunners' duties, showrunners' latitude, you could compromise on the sort of guaranteed sizes of the writers' rooms while still being reassured that there would be an avenue for those rooms to exist and for them not to be sort of legislated out of existence by cost-cutting studios. I'm not saying I have the solution to the whole Megilla, but given the sort of the bitterness of that particular sticking point, I think that would be a place to start. Look, here's, here's my point on all this, is that I think if the WGA wants the minimum writers' rooms, then like the handful of people who write the shows on their own just give like a handful of make make work make jobs. Make work jobs. Make work jobs to people. I literally like the Sopranos where you have the mobster sitting around the construction sites, you know? Just have like a writer's room full of your friends doing nothing and taking a paycheck and getting their insurance. Like I don't understand why they wouldn't just agree to that. But I, I do think the the residuals thing is a much bigger issue here because yeah. I I like I don't I don't see how this gets resolved without either the studios giving up more data or both sides agreeing to a third party that can measure it all, right, Peter? I mean, like, what, what's the actual? Yeah. So so this is the really sticky wicket to me. And let's start with the just sort of the, the deep problem here, which is that many of these streaming services are not profitable. 
And so if you are a not profitable streaming service, then in some sense, no show is a success. They're all losing money. And so it's so no one would get uh, profit based um you know, incentives there, presuming that the the idea is to pay people for shows that are profitable. And that is a change from the way things used to be on ad-supported cable uh, networks or uh, broadcast networks. Because in theory, a a, a money-losing network could still point to a specific show or the the people working for that specific show could say, we are making money because here's what it costs to produce our show, our hour of television each week or each day. And here's how much money the ads are bringing in. And we're making, we're putting you into the closer to the profit zone. So you pay us more. And that is no longer an option because if a streaming service is just losing money overall, then no show is making them money in a direct sense. Yeah. I mean, do you think to a certain extent this has become such a bitter point because acknowledging this data would be really bad for the streamers at a moment when Wall Street seems to have stopped focusing on explosive growth and started demanding profitability? I mean, Scott Mendelson had a piece in The Wrap um, about how the number of original movies that the the streamers are commissioning is going down because all of a sudden Wall Street has decided it wants something else and that something else is profitability. Alyssa is totally right. Um, The streamers don't want to release this information because it would probably be financially damaging uh, to them in the short run uh, in terms of their uh, stock prices. Also because they worry that other rivals will steal their steal their ideas, will see what, what's working and not working, uh, and will be able to use that information. Those are totally legitimate worries if you are running a business and part of your job is to keep your stock price up and not lose a ton of money in the short term. But I think that the streamers ultimately are going to have to find some way to release this data. Maybe not to the general public, uh, though, if it's released to an awful lot of writers, it gets out to, uh, it probably gets out to the public somehow or another, even if it's in drips and drabs and never, you know, some sort of uh, consistent form. And when I say have to, maybe I don't mean have to. I think they should. And I don't just mean that I think they should because I'm someone who's on the outside and I would find it really interesting, though I would. I think they should because I think ultimately the business will be better if like in the long run, if they release this information. Because right now, all of it is secret and siloed, even within the streaming companies. Like not everyone at Netflix has access to this data is my understanding. I guess I could be incorrect about that because I don't work for Netflix. But what is happening in Hollywood right now is that they are not producing enough hits. And the old model of producing hits was that you could see what was a hit. Like at least in 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 television and in the, uh, you know at the box office, the numbers were very clear. Yes, they were high level and fudgy in certain ways, but you knew what a hit was, and everyone in the industry knew what a hit was. So if one thing was a hit, then everybody else would try to reverse engineer it and make another one, and often that worked. Now maybe that wasn't always great for art. Maybe there was a lot of dumb repetitive stuff being made, but that allowed for for everyone to chase the things that actually worked. And what is happening right now is that because so few people know what is actually working, the creatives who sometimes are just like sort of reverse engineer writers, right? Who are like, I'd like to make a movie that's like Jurassic Park, but not Jurassic Park, but like, uh, right? Like, a, and then you end up with, I don't know, some other big scary dinosaur film, or big scary monster film three years later. You get Relic, right? You get the big monster in the museum movie. Uh, you guys remember that yeah. one? Oh, yeah. Right? And it was sort of like, oh, this is Jurassic Park, but it's a horror film and it's, mod- anyway, whatever. Um, you get all of these kind of, iterative rip-off things, but also sometimes you get some really interesting ideas. The Terminator 2 leads to The Matrix, right? 
But the thing is that because people know what hits are, everyone can see it and everyone can try their hand at making a thing that is known to work. And that's not happening right now. And as a result, we've got all of these writers chasing niche ideas that are probably not going to be big hits, probably not going to work really well for big audiences. And you don't and they don't have any they don't have any visibility into the stuff that is working. And so if the streamers want the creatives to produce stuff that works and is a hit with audiences, then they need to tell the creatives what is working and let them see. And over a period of years, it will not solve their problems in six months and it won't solve them next year either. But over a period of years, I think this will actually generate clarity about this is the kind of stuff that is working, that works right now, that has worked in the past. And we will have this long line of, you know, a sort of a, we will have a, a linear temporal sense of what hits are, how they are evolving and why. And that will allow people to make stuff that people want to watch. And that's what streamers need right now. I think all that is basically true. I mean, I think we have some idea of what works and some idea of what doesn't work. Yes, you can look at a bunch of external measures, right? An entertainment strategy guy has right. made this point is that, to, yes, if you if you gather all of the public data and you look at the IMDb ratings and you look at what is being ordered, you know, for a fourth season, sure, you can tell to some degree. But, Sonny, you and I are like students of the box office, not as much as the professionals are, or, well, I'm not as much as the professionals are. Maybe you are. But, like... I, I know I've had these conversations with you where even when you were a teenager or, you know, your early 20s before you were really like doing a lot of film stuff full time, you just read the box office numbers all the time. And you often would like read historical stuff. And so you had just had in your head, like in 1986, this was the biggest comedy and it was the number four movie of the year. And then they made a bunch of other things with those same actors and the producer made this, right? All trying to replicate that hit. And you just had this line of, of success in your head and you knew what worked. And that, is, that was true for a lot of people. That was true for the producers. That was true for the writers. That was true for the directors. And it's not true anymore. And it, it, I don't think it's totally an accident. I'm, there are many factors, many, many factors at, at play here. But I don't think it's totally an accident that Hollywood has gotten lost in terms of producing big popular hits at the exact moment that they've started hiding all the data about what a big popular hit looks like. I want to just take it back even a step further than that. And that is, I think a lot of the streaming companies, their parent companies, don't want to release the numbers because the numbers are embarrassing uh, at at a lot of these places. And part of this is just a function of the size of the different groups here, right? So like Netflix is a, they have 200 some million subscribers, right? Globally, yeah. HBO Max, whatever we're calling it now, Max, Max, uh, whatever it is, That's what it, we're you know, it. is is smaller. Is smaller. It's like uh, about you know a third of that size. Paramount Plus is smaller still, et cetera. So like we're talking about different different sorts of playing fields here. And I just want to read one stat. All right. So Ballers, the football show produced and starring The Rock, was on HBO slash HBO Max. It was part of the deal that uh, Max made with Netflix to to do some content sharing. So here's a number from uh, a uh, the, the TV Grim Reaper. Here is the quote. Ballers did 1.7 million viewing minutes from August 7th to August 13th when it was only on Max. 
From August 14th to August 20th, when it was on both Netflix and Max, it jumped to 696 million minutes total. Now, part of that is going to be a function of Netflix putting it on its homepage. Sure, right? promotions have always mattered, though. That's what Marketing we're talking campaigns, about Marketing campaigns, the be-all, end-all, but they, they do make a difference. But, but Netflix's entire marketing campaign for many of their movies is simply, here's the homepage of Netflix. Yes. Here's the homepage. It's a different and form that, of marketing, but it's and still- that is. But my point here is that like Netflix is putting up such enormous numbers that all of the rest of the studios sit them and say to themselves, do we really want even our hits, even something like Succession, really getting compared transparently to like whatever random thing is on uh, Netflix's homepage in any given day? And I think I, I think that's a legitimate fear, which is, again, why I go back to the Parrot Analytics idea or whoever. It doesn't have to be Parrot. It could be anyone. Just like have a third party who measures comparative popularity within channels and use that as the stat. Use that as the the multiplier, the divider, whatever. However you want to divvy up the money, just do it that way. But don't you think there's also a case, and we're way beyond the realm of the contract, for the public having some good non, you know, nonsense statistic sense of what's being watched. Absolutely. I mean, I some would of the, you that. know, like a bunch of these are public companies and it would be good for their investors and the institutional investors who are buying stock in them to know whether or not they're actually viable going concerns. And also, I think it is good for the public to know what is popular. I think it is part of, you know, shaping people's attention and, you know, having viable metrics to champion stuff that's on the verge of cancellation, but also just knowing what our common culture is in a measurable way seems to me something me to be of actual value in a way that has really gotten lost and that, you know, I regret. Alyssa, I totally agree with you. 100% agree with you. Uh, I've been beating this drum with you for a long time. I think it is absolutely not the place of the WGA or SAG to demand this. It, it doesn't really have anything to do with their contract. Totally. And, and also, frankly, I think it would be counterproductive for them to do this. Here's, here's my final point. I think it's actually a mistake for the WGA to be pushing for full transparency. Because if people find out how little so many of these shows get watched, they're going to make way fewer shows. They're just going to yes. make less stuff. And that's going to mean less jobs, fewer jobs for writers. It's going to mean fewer jobs for actors. It's going to mean fewer jobs for IATSE employees. That whole ecosystem is, I think, much more fragile than people understand. And as our friend Rob Long has talked about, like, we're going to have a smaller a smaller ecosystem as it is. If you start showing that, like, 9 out of 10 shows get watched by 100,000 people, it's going to be much, much smaller that, yeah. than we're thinking, you know? I think there's some truth to that, uh, but I also think that showing what is working is going to allow writers to chase hits, and it's going to allow them to adapt to do more stuff that people actually want to watch. What it's going to do at the same time is it's going to mean that the niche stuff, that is the writer's passion project that honestly, like maybe even I would think this is a, a an interesting idea, but there's just not a big audience for it, that sort of thing would end up going away. But I, you know... That's kind of always been the case in Hollywood is that the passion projects where there isn't a big audience have always struggled. And that when we had a lot more transparency and a lot more data, that's how it was. And I, I understand that there are downsides. And as a writer who likes niche stuff, like I get that. But I also think that, that the business will be better for everyone if there are more people attached to things that people like. And the way to do that is that we know what people like. I also think that the extent to which those passion projects are actually getting made right now for a wide array of people is 
to a certain extent, studio PR, right? I mean, Ryan Murphy gets to make like some weird nonsense under the conditions of like a $500 million deal with Netflix, but also what they end up pushing him to do is make like more serial killer shows and that's what he ends up doing. And the overwhelming, like 99.99% of people who are working in this industry are not making their passion projects. And it is convenient for Netflix and other places to be like, we're the place that gives you artistic freedom. As long as it's about like serial killers or people getting together under like weird circumstances or, you know, like a Korean show that they can import. That's all the types of shows, Alyssa. You just listed them all. I did not list Bluey. (laughs) Bluey is the other type of show. So what you're saying is Ryan Murphy needs to make a serial killer Bluey show. Oh, my God. Serial killer, talking dog, Australian shepherd, dingo type dog show. So we're going to learn that Bandit is actually a murderer. Like like the great icon of contemporary dadhood. He just just goes away for weeks at a time. Nobody's really sure why. Turns out he's just got basements full of bodies all over Australia. All right. we've, We've gotten silly. Uh, let's wrap this up. What do we think? Is it a controversy or a non-controversy that streamers don't want to give up their stats? Peter? I think it's a controversy, and I I ultimately think that it is hurting everyone in the industry. Alyssa? It's controversial. I would say it's it's a controversy, except I, I don't think, again, I, I just think that uh, there is a very real argument to be made that everybody, writers and studios alike, are better off not knowing how little everything is watched. I think I think there's a, there's a, there's a certain s- a sense where ignorance can be bliss and everybody might want to keep that in mind before we shut Hollywood down for a year uh, to try and sort all this out. All right. Uh, speaking of the strike on this week's bonus episode over at Bulwark Plus, we're going to be discussing the removal of Dune from the release calendar in response to the ongoing labor strife, as well as the uh, movies we are hoping will stay on the calendar if the strike continues, if the strikes continue. There's both. Remember, we were just talking about WGA today. There's, there's a whole bunch of SAG stuff to get into, but you know, we'll save that for another show. Now on to the main event, Gran Turismo. Uh, one thing to know about Gran Turismo is that it is not a video game movie, as some people have been describing it. It is actually a sports movie. Yes, despite being produced by PlayStation and bearing the title of the racing simulator Gran Turismo, it is a sports movie through and through. You can basically run down a checklist and see it hit every sports movie beat. A loner underdog who is misunderstood by those around him and looking for purpose in life, only to find it when he's offered a chance to compete? Check. A grizzled vet of the sport who doesn't believe the kids he's assigned to train? Have what it takes to make the pros? Check. A training montage in which we see the kids learn the basics of the sport, failing at first and then getting better? Check. A series of low-level competitions that show improvements at first before a big setback? Check. A comeback that leads to a triumphant pseudo-victory, victory-ish, demonstrating that our plucky underdog had what it took all along. You better believe that's a check. I guess what I'm saying here is that Jason Hall uh, and Zach Balin, who are the the writers, uh, the credited screenwriters on this, they're not reinventing the wheel. This is all fairly typical stuff, but it's also all about 10% better than it needs to be, particularly in the acting. David Harbour is wonderful as uh, the grizzled vet, the aforementioned grizzled vet. Uh, Jaiman Hansu, fantastic as the disbelieving dad. You you understand why he's won two Oscars, because he's given this garbage nonsense this it's really a thankless role the the disbelieving dad in any movie like this 
totally thankless role. And he nails it. You believe the tears. Archie Madekwe, I can't pronounce his last name, I'm sorry. Uh, he's perfectly fine as Jean, the underdog who needs a chance to prove he belongs. The villains, they're the snootably sneering rich kids. Thomas Kretschmann has like a one-shot scene where it's like, yes, that's the role Thomas Kretschmann was born to play. Um, and director Neil Blomkamp, uh, who burst onto the scene a decade or so ago with District 9, keeps things on the racetrack. Zippy, shifting between ground-level camera work during the races and high-speed aerial drone shots to help simulate the speed and excitement of an actual automobile race. This is what I'm saying. This is a canonical 2.5 out of 4 star movie for me. It's pleasant. It's crowd pleasing. The audience I saw it with cheered at all the right moments. Got an A from Cinema Score. The folk, the people, the people love it. And I am a nothing if not a champion of the people. But it doesn't do anything that risks like transcendence. This isn't a great movie. It's not a movie you're going to pass down to the kids and be like, "Come on, let's go watch Gran Turismo." It's good enough. Sometimes things can just be good enough. Peter, uh, when we were texting about this movie, you used, you seem to be of the opinion that good enough is not, in fact, good enough. Uh, that's because this movie isn't good enough. The first oh, hour of this film is flat out boring. I was looking at my watch and thinking, why does this movie exist? It plays like a commercial because it is a commercial. In fact, it's a commercial about what was essentially an incredibly elaborate commercial. I am not the first person to make this observation, but the, the subject of this film is the Gran Turismo Academy, where they took kids who were really good at playing the video game. Yes, we're told in the movie that it's not really a video game, it's a simulator, uh, right? But like, okay, so they took, they took kids who were really good at the simulator and gave them opportunities to race actual cars, but the whole thing was just there to sell cars and video games, right? It wasn't, it was, that's all it was. They spent a lot of money on like to generate attention and make it seem more exciting than it is because actually it's just playing a video game. It's not even a game. It's just a simulator, right? Like when you put it that way, it doesn't make it sound more serious. It makes it sound more boring. And that's what this movie is. It's a simulation of a movie. Again, I'm not the first person to make this observation, but it, it just, just felt like I was watching a reenactment of a reality television show, which I kind of was. And I hate reality television and I hate reenactments. It gets a little bit better once they get under the race course in the second hour of this film. And some of the racing scenes are done with a little more flair and a little more competence. Neil Blomkamp, he can be an exciting director. And, and some of the bits, including the, the Dark Knight of the Soul, where the you know where Jan uh, flips his car, gets in a very bad accident, um, uh, not just flips his car, but the car goes sailing. And it picks up air, and there's and it's rendered uh, actually pretty excited, pretty thrillingly. I, I shouldn't say excitingly; it is horrifying and thrilling. And you actually sort of see the way that that the air just turns this car into a sort of an airfoil um, in the middle of the track. And that's a good little bit of racing filmmaking. But that's the best I can say about this because I did not care about any of these characters at all. David Harbour is a good actor and makes the most out of an absolutely garbage script, but there's still just nothing there. There is nothing to any of these characters, and there's nothing to the sport either. None of the characters have any more attributes like than are minimally necessary in order to get you from scene to scene. And you learn absolutely nothing about this incredibly fascinating, intricate, technical uh, sport that involves both a lot of human decision, like decision making on, on the part of humans, and also a lot of engineering. 
There's no engineering in this movie. There's no thought of like no discussion about the actual specific decisions that drivers have to make in real time. I think that the closest we get is that at one point we hear about the G forces that you uh, that you experience when you are in a car. But this movie is not about the specifics of what it takes to be a race car driver. And as I was watching this, I thought about a different movie from uh, many decades ago, The Right Stuff, which is based on Tom Wolfe's true story about the first astronauts, all of whom were pulled from the ranks of test pilots. And The Right Stuff is just a, a fantastic classic film that also, that works in part because it shows you what all of these pilots have to go through and the specific things that even the, these best of the best of the best pilots have to learn to do that are outside of their comfort zones in some ways, right? Stuff with their breath, stuff with their bodies, mental fortitude things, right? Like the ways that they have to that they have to train themselves and reform themselves and relearn flying so that they can go to space. And you, you come away from it, not just not just kind of entertained, but understanding first who the people were, what their specific characters were, and second, the specific challenges that they went through. I learned nothing about any of these people and nothing about the sport, and I was bored for an hour of it. This is a bad movie. Alyssa, did you also hate Gran Turismo? No, because I have the capacity for enjoyment that both of you lack. Um, I liked in it. some levels. No, no, no. I'm just saying broadly. Uh, no, I enjoyed this movie in part because I'm a huge sucker for. I like sports movies in general, despite you know being because I'm a parent. I'm too tired to stay up and actually watch sports anymore. And this is not an all-time great sports movie, but it's a perfectly enjoyable one on some level. But as a piece of cinema, the most useful way to talk about it is I think this. And I actually like mediocre movies as sort of curiosity and discussion objects in some ways because they are often very good at helping you see the importance of different parts of filmmaking. And this movie is an interesting example of how far a group of pretty good actors can take a not very good script. And so, you know, you've both mentioned David Harbour, who is, I think, quite strong in this movie. And he's someone who does not have a lot of writing to work with, right? The sort of, the most eccentric sort of outside detail we're given about him is the way that he holds on to a Walkman and that they listen to a lot of, um, you know, metal on that. And Hard rock. that becomes sort of a- yeah, um, Classic, classic metal. Like yeah, Black Sabbath. Metal. Yes, exactly. Um, and so, you know, he's really not given a lot to work with, but Harper is very good at choosing sort of the specific intonation for a line. He lends a, you know, especially in the early sequences of the movie, his character has this habit of making people feel awkward by not just being more negative than motivational, but also just sort of letting things trail off in the middle of conversations or kind of ending them bluntly. And, you know, Harbour handles those line readings nicely. Um, you know, he brings a kind of pleasant full-on physicality to the character. Like when Jan has this really terrible crash, you see this, you know, he is feeling it in his body. He basically collapses in a way that is a little bit broader than you might expect from another actor in that situation, but that actually feels properly emotionally calibrated to the moment. And you can see in those choices, you know, you can see in those choices him finding a sort of physicality and style of speaking for the character that 
fleshes out some fairly thin lines. In the same way, you know, Hansu's character has very little to do. You know, you know that he is a you know former player, uh, you know, footballer for Cardiff, who clearly was not a big enough star to make his family a lot of money, and he now actually works this. Uh, you know, a blue collar job on the railway. And in some ways, the most interesting scene in the movie is not the one where he says to his son, like, I didn't properly support you and cries. And again, you know, takes that kind of a step beyond the like rueful, regretful dad. Like he's someone who feels real anguish about that decision. But the most interesting scene is actually the one where he's taken Jan out to his job at the railroad after uh, Jan and his brother have like snuck out with a family car and, you know, ripped a, um, a side mirror off it. And Jan is sort of like, why am I here? What are you doing? You know, how long do I have to do this? And Hatsu's character is really angry. And it's like, because if you don't make a decision to commit to some sort of path, this is where you're going to end up. And you see his level of anger and disappointment about his life and frustration with his son. Again, this is not fleshed out or well-developed in the script, but you can see how much further acting can take you when you take a good actor and give them a bad script. It's a way of, you know, sort of establishing, there's this term in baseball to measure how good a pitcher is called wins above replacement. And a movie like this is actually good at, you know, helping you see, if you watch carefully, an actor's value above replacement in a kind of mediocre role. I mean, for the love of God, like Ginger Spice, Jerry Halliwell is in this movie as Jan's mother. And again, she is very, you know, very affecting in the scene where she's watching the race where Jan crashes on television. She has basically no lines in this movie and yet manages to convey the sort of that the panicked tension of a mother who doesn't know whether her son is alive and is having to sort of watch the spectacle at a remove in some physical acting. So I found this much more enjoyable than Peter did uh, because I, you know, I'm weak, probably. Uh, I have the capacity for joy. But I do think if you like movies, it's actually often worth watching a movie like this to develop your sense of what makes a good actor a good actor. Peter, I, I am curious, what sports movies do you like? Or do you just not like sports movies generally? Uh, I like uh, all three of the Creed films. I, um, I, I like Southpaw, actually, which is the... Um, Jake Gyllenhaal boxing movie. The first Rocky is very good. I don't love the later ones as much. Um, I recall liking Hoosiers, but I'm, I don't think I've seen that since I was 15 years old. So it's been a little while. The Ron Howard racing race car movie that came out just a few years ago, I thought was quite good. Uh, Ford versus Ferrari is not quite a sports movie, but it's a lot like a, a, a racing sports movie. All right. It follows many of the same beats. And man, just thinking about Ford versus Ferrari and how much you learn about the, the people, you learn a little less about the cars. It's true. But even there, you're learning a bunch about how the, the racing industry and the car industry works. You also get a real feel for how race cars like the sense of being in one if you are not used to it. There's that incredible scene where they take the executive for a ride in the car and in that movie. And it is, who is the actor who plays the executive? It is just a, a total, total hoot. And it shows you, this is what it's like to be inside one of the world's most impressive cars if you aren't used to it already. And what a lot, what a lot of these racing movies do is they assume 
that like you know, they sort of they're bringing you in through people who have a lot of experience in the cars. And even Jan here um, has experience with uh, at least in the at least doing the simulations. And so he has some sense of what to expect. And this movie doesn't give you nearly the kind of clear impression about the sensation of having to of, of having all of that sort of force put on you and having to make those decisions. It tells you just a little bit, oh, sure, it's hot. Oh, you've just got to like get to the point where you can just kind of do it without thinking about it. But there's this like there's a scene that drove me nuts in this movie that I think is indicative of its biggest problem. Um, after one of the races, Jan and uh, David Harbour, the coach character, go uh, to a hotel bar and have a beer. They're talking about their favorite tracks. And Harbour says, it says, you know, which track is his favorite? I forget the one that he, was it Le Mans? Le Mans. No. Was it Le Mans that he said was his favorite? Right. And he just says, he sort of, he gets this glint in his eye. He says, it's a perfect track. It like really tests you. And he says absolutely nothing about the specific features or qualities of the track. If you have ever met someone who has a huge volume of highly technical professional knowledge that they put into use every every day, there is no way that they just say, oh, I liked that track because it's intense, because it's perfect. They say the corner at, you know, uh, what at, at mile point marker 0.72, like I don't even know what they would say because this movie gives me absolutely no sense of how race people who have technical knowledge in racing would actually speak to each other because no one talks like they are doing the thing that they are supposedly doing. They talk like they, they talk like with screenwriters who spent one hour reading a Wikipedia page about racing. And we're like, yeah, you know what? We don't want this technical stuff. We just want to hear that it's intense. And the movie just says it's intense over and over. This will test you. This is hard. This is a, a thing that you'll have to go through that will be tough. And then it doesn't tell us or show us why ever. And so I didn't believe it and I didn't care about it. And it does the same thing with the people. It just gives you so little to work with that the only way you can relate to them is through, oh man, David Harbour sold that absolutely blank and listless line pretty well for a completely blank and listless line. I will say um, in Boulder, I'm one of the great sort of meta sports yeah, movies. Um, great. But there's a, there's a scene where... Kevin Costner sits down, Tim Robbins, and is like, all right, we've got to memorize your cliches, right? Because, like, sports are an area where cliche is sort of a part of the vernacular and is it is part of the argot and then how you perform it is actually sort of important to your role as a player. Um, but, yeah, no, I mean, this movie is absolutely not Bulldurham or actually A League of Their Own, which is a movie that I think doesn't is almost the, you know, inverse of this in terms of being so rich about the amount of character development in a big cast that it does in sort of a short movie and about what it takes to be good, but also about sort of the difference between someone who's really talented but not interested in a sport versus someone who is less talented but more dedicated. Um, yeah, this is not an... A, good movie, but I did think it was kind of an enjoyable one. All right. Uh, so what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on Gran Turismo? Peter? I don't know. I'll have to think about it. Thumbs down. This is a bad movie. Alyssa? <sighs> it's kind of thumbs neutral. I like. I said to Peter that I wish he, we have a couple of friends who watch like a lot of serious car racing, including in person. And I would have sort of liked to watch it with them, but I'm not sure I 
feel strongly about seeing it again under any other circumstances. Uh, thumbs up because it exceeds at what it's trying to do, which is uh, be a perfectly serviceable sports movie that uh, gets audiences to cheer at all the right places. Again, the audience I saw it with, very, very into it. More into it than I was, certainly. Uh, they were they were super excited. I will say my one big critique of this movie, did you guys catch the, the final song that started playing in the, the closing moments, the closing triumphant moments, which is the final song from Heat? Moby's <laughs> silly. Yes. Moby's God right. moving over the uh, over the face of the waters or whatever. Uh it, that annoyed me. I, that actually almost made me go thumbs down because I was like I was like that's a bridge too far with your generic stealing. I will say the recurring Enya joke uh was something I really enjoyed and it apparently is real. Yeah. I loved true. it. Unlike some of the things in this movie, for example, the big uh, car crash did not take place in the sequence that we see it in. It actually took place many years later and was not this sort of setback on the way to his first big 24 Hours at Le Mans podium. I mean, it, I, I can't get I can't get too worked up about that sort of thing. Just, we gotta heighten the drama here. You need drama, you need the big setback after this early successes, Peter, come on. All right, uh, all right, that is it for this week's show. Make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus for our bonus episode on Friday. Tell your friends. Strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. We don't grow, we'll die. If you did not love today's episode, please come play to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. Bye.